Welcome to episode 14 of your favorite new podcast, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ray Coob, and I'm with my buddy. Marcus in the darkest. How you doing? Good, man. We have a special guest in the studio with us this week on the podcast. I know. I know. You, saw, you see how excited he is? <laughs> I'm very He's excited. all worked up. I know. I get excited about this stuff. One of the most accomplished guys that I know that is living in the Philadelphia area. He's played with the list is unbelievable. Uh, one of the greatest bass players in rock and roll history. Kenny Aronson is with us here on the Imbalance History Podcast. Yeah, welcome. Nice, yeah, nice welcome. to be here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. We did a little uh, searching around about your history. and you said you, It's funny because you said you might have to bring some notes because <laughs> some of the stuff yeah, is, is back a, there all the way at the, uh, at the beginning. But I, I'm sure <laughs> I, I want to just jump right into, first off, what brings you to Philadelphia? You've been living here for a while. I know you play a lot with David was sickening in the pocket and all, and you've been doing a lot of other things. But what brought you to Philadelphia? That young lady right over there, my oh, girlfriend Cheryl. Yeah. Well, thanks, Cheryl. Yeah. Thank you very no, much. No, so Cheryl. we've been we've been together for a while, but not living together. I was still living up in New Jersey. Right. And finally, it was just you know time for me to get out of there and move in and just do it the right way. You did know, you know just, you were plugging yeah. into such a busy scene? No, I did not. Time? I did not. And I'll tell you, since I met Dave. And got involved with him with In the Pocket and just got involved with all these really great musicians and really great people. More than anything, it's like a really wonderful bunch of people, just really great folks, you know, and they're all really great players. That's the bonus. You get to play with guys and gals who know yeah. what they're doing and, and they work together so well. I think back to the show you guys did where we met actually at the Keswick Theater where the album was recorded and the seamless way that all the musicians work together in that project, you know, yeah. jumping in and out for songs. And, you know, and, and I got to meet people. People like Charlie and Richie Ingwe, the Soul Soul Survivors, right. and you know when I think about how much I loved that record growing up, and here I am friendly with them now, and you know it's a little surreal for it's me. Sometimes very cool, too. man. It really just really all of them, just a great bunch of people, and they've all been very kind to me and made me feel welcome, and you know just sort of part of the group. You know, it's great. You're known for your bass playing, but I found out you started out playing drums like your brother. How did you come around to playing the bass? Well. I mean, growing up in Brooklyn, with my brother was almost seven years older than me, and there was a drum kit in the house. I always wanted to play something, and then around the time I was about 11, I started banging on his drums because he wasn't playing them so much. He was playing more in school now, right? and he wasn't really using them at home. So they were an old set of Rogers drums, Blue Sparkle, and I'd come home from school and set them up and just put a stack of 45s on the changer, on the, ah, on the turntable, right. and I would just... Just play along, you know, for a while every afternoon, driving the neighbors crazy. <laughs> it's amazing that my parents didn't get evicted. <laughs> and, you know, there'd be beetles and birds and just one thing coming down on the changer one after another. And I would just bang along with them. Were there any records that stood out to you during that time when you were playing drums? Were there <clears> any <throat> drummers that you really took to more or were you listening to other I musicians? loved Ringo. Yeah. Why? Loved what about Ringo. Ringo did you love so much at that time? I How could you not like Ringo? He was, <laughs> he was an animal. I mean, no, I loved I loved Ringo, and at that time, I was really more about drums. Part of the thing was also getting into bass eventually mm -hmm. was what I was listening to stuff on was a monophonic speaker that my father built. We didn't have stereo. We right. had 
mono. Okay. And he built the amplifier and the preamp and the radio out of Ico kits. Wow. And we had one mono speaker. And between that and hanging out at the pizza place in my neighborhood and listening to, you know, I heard a lot of bass. I heard a lot of drums. I didn't really hear so much what always got my focus, what always got my attention was the rhythm section. Mm-hmm. So it was always drums and always the low end. And then, you know, I was always fascinated by Motown records because of the bass on them, you know. Oh, yeah. Which came from listening to a mono, either the speaker of my house or the jukebox in the pizza place, which was just a giant mono speaker, probably. It was just put out a lot of bass. So I just was always captivated by, like, low end and by percussion and also... My brother, when we were really young, I got turned on to a Duke Ellington record called Uptown, and he had Louis Belson playing drums back then, oh, and he, Louis had done the famous drum solo, Skin Deep. I just heard that on the radio and on the jazz station here in town the other night and lost my shit. Yes. Well, so did I at a very early age, Skin Deep. And then the other thing as a kid was we had Alatunji's Drums of Passion out. Album. What's that? You know that? No. Well, What's you've that? heard it. It's a classic tune. Okay. It's a classic Alatunji African artist, and he had this album called Drums of Passion, and I think it's also the track that I'm talking about. I could be wrong, but if you heard it, you would probably know it, because it's pretty famous. And I was doing just certain certain things as at a young age that just really grabbed my attention and just uh, had a major effect on me. So in, in that atmosphere, every Everybody's forming a band, and you formed a band, or you joined a band called Dust. They were your first band, right? Well, that was the first band I played where I knew what I was doing, but there uh, were bands before that. Okay, I, I was in a band with friends of mine way before Dust called the Men from UNCLE. <laughs> 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 and uh, that was really like my first band. That was the first time I actually played bass with anybody. And a quick story was when I first got my bass when I got a bass for the first time, I wasn't really committed to it. And I'd pluck around, but I was sort of directionless at the time. And then I moved to a different neighborhood and I met some new kids my age through a cousin of mine and they needed a bass player. So I got together with one of the guitar players. It was a friend of mine, uh, Eddie Clark, who just passed away not too long ago. Fast Eddie Clark? And no, that well, Eddie Clark? No, no, no. Oh, okay. This is just a, a buddy of a buddy mine of from yours. Brooklyn. Okay, I just wanted to be sure. And and, and actually, he took one. I got to ask because you early... played with so many people, Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and it's, I, it's, and it's hard to keep track at times. But anyway, so this buddy of mine, I went over to his house. This was the first time I got together with another guitar player. And I actually didn't know how to tune the bass in relationship to playing with a guitarist. Right. I didn't have the concept yet. And in groping around trying to get in tune, I broke all the strings on my bass. Just trying to figure because I had just been plucking around on myself and didn't really know what I was doing yet. But anyway, so that's actually how I got started with this friend of mine, Eddie, which led me to be in this band. And and then, you know, and this was all in Brooklyn. And then ultimately I met Mark Bell, Marky Ramon. Right. We were all in the same group of people. All these kids were 
going to the same junior high school. I came from a different neighborhood and still went to my junior high school, but I was friends with all these kids in this new neighborhood. And that's how I met Mark Bell, Marky Ramon. And then it was Mark who actually found this other neighborhood that had musicians in it in an area called Parkside Avenue. And that's where I started to hang out and met all these other musicians. And that's where Dust had already been formed. So Dust was already around way before when, when I ever... found them, right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they were a band. And when I was going to school, I used to see people wearing yellow buttons with black print on it. You know, Dust. It said Dust. And people used to go, it means, oh, do you sell tea? <laughs> you know? And and, and then ultimately, I, re- I moved to this... You know, I started hanging around this other neighborhood and... <laughs> There was dust. Wow. So they were kind of like the neighborhood hot they band. They were the neighborhood hot band yeah. and always going through changes. And eventually, for me, starting to play with these different kids and me learning how to play and, you know, getting my chops together, eventually dust needed a new bass player and I just got the gig. Right. And then it was a few years of playing with them and really mostly in rehearsal. We hardly played live. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, we would do a show in the area. But that's how I found Dust. That's how I started playing with Dust. And we stayed together long enough to actually get a recording deal. Which was, they were, and Dust was you know, on Kama Sutra, correct? Oh, yeah. Buddha Kama Sutra. Any, uh, what was it like inside that label at those times? And do you have any good Artie Rip stories? I remember Artie Rip, but I, you know, I never really got involved with the right. powers that be. I mean, I really, I knew Neil Bogart. But Neil Bogart was really the guy that was dating a day with us. Right. Well, that's great. Neil took a chance because he was trying to do something different because we all know Budokama Sutra was, you know, was the king of the bubblegum labels, yeah. right? Yeah. But, well, I have a lot they, of those but they, had, yeah. they had other interesting things going on because they had these custom offshoot labels where they had, you know, Curtis Mayfield, it was called Kurtom, and I okay. think that was his sort of place. The very well-known session bass player, Chuck Rainey. Oh. Sure. He did his first album, and he was had a little subsidiary label with them called Cobblestone Records, which I think was a little bit more jazz-based. Buzzy Linhart was there. Wow. There were a lot of people. I think the Honeycomb was there. They were like a R&B gals. Uh, they had... Um, I think I remember that's them when they were... Could they have were, uh, the Want Ads maybe was the, oh, was the tune. We're going to have to do some want ads. post-podcast research yes, on this. And I think we might have to do a whole episode on Kama Sutra. You know, it's funny. This stuff comes up and one. then I grope for the information that sure. I used to... I, all this stuff used to be in there. It's like, still there. It's know, there. It takes some effort to get it out. But yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on. But when we got signed, so we had this manager, Don. Dominic Cecilia, Dust had, you know, he, he was helping us and he worked at Buddha Kama Sutra and he got us in there. And Neil Bogart was trying to do something different and he was looking to experiment with rock. And that's what he got with us. We were not commercial on any level and he took a chance, you know, but we were his first experiment with rock before Kiss because right. ultimately he got Kiss right. when he started Casablanca. And all this was so, happening right there 
from Brooklyn. It's really amazing. Yeah, and I'm really Kiss was is. from Queens, and right. Dust was Did from Brooklyn. Did you know those guys at that time? Did you know, like, Gene and Paul or any of those no, guys? No, I didn't know them. You, no. Did you hear of them in the music scene where they talked about, like, were there bands playing live when you guys were playing live? They were playing around, but I had never seen them. I pretty much stuck to Brooklyn, and then I started hanging around in a bar in Manhattan down in the village called Nobody's, and that was where the New York Dolls were hanging oh, wow. out in the uh-huh. beginning of that whole scene. That's pre-Cedie Judy's days, correct? Yeah, oh yes, and uh, it was the early Max's days. But before Max's really took off, like Max's, Max's was transitioning from more like an arty kind of hangout into the rock and roll thing. So we're You've talking. You've got his undivided attention so right now. Yeah. We're, so we're talking wants to know more about that whole. So scene. you're talking late '60s, early '70s. Yeah, right. You know, what was a young David Johansson like? Man, those guys. I'll tell you something. They, those guys. I'm going to tell you a funny story. I had this friend Max. I was living in Brooklyn, and we would go into the city. We would stand outside across the street from this place nobodies and we would watch all these rock and roll kids dressed in crushed velvet and satin and they were all buying their clothes from this place called Granny Takes a Trip or Jumping Jack Flash (laughs) wearing platform boots and they had shag haircuts and the girls were all hot with their shag haircuts and their glitter and all in feather boas and you know it was like this place nobodies was like the hub of the the beginning of the glam rock thing in wow. New York City right. and you just couldn't believe what was going on in this place and then it, eventually it all moved over to Max's. Now did a young David Bowie show up in that scene at all and hang out sort of randomly because well, he was sort of in... Anybody in, who was anybody coming into New York would go down to Nobody's and hang out and Led Zeppelin would go there and take all the girls with him <laughs> <laughs> and the dolls would hold court in the back of the bar, you know, it was like a back area and I remembered how they all were just, they were so ahead of anything that I was aware of in terms of fashion and even if they couldn't play they looked amazing. (laughs) And, and, And I actually and they were pretty raw as players, you know, they weren't you know, sophisticated and if you fancied yourself a musician you'd go, what are these people doing, you know, know, it's like oh, I I could play way better than that, but man, they were getting all the girls. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of punk bands in the eighties couldn't play, but yeah. they well, looked the part. It was seventies, yeah. 70s, yeah. yeah. I mean seventies. They too. but they look great. Hey, I'm curious because we're talking about like the ground level there where you're getting everything, you're finding your way. Finding your way, yes. But yes. then you caught on with a band called Stories, right? And that grew out of Dust. Oh, it did. Because Dust and Stories had this same manager, this guy Dominic Cecilia. He right. managed both bands. Got it. And so what happened was Stories had their first record out. Dust was breaking up because our guitar player, Richie Wise, he and our lyricist, Kenny Kerner, they wanted to produce records. Richie, the guitar player, was losing interest in playing guitar. He didn't want to go on the road, and they were more interested in producing. So when Neil started Casablanca, he took them out to California with him and set them up as producers where they worked on the early Kiss record. Wow. Dust broke up. Stories at that time was floundering. The founder, Michael Brown, he left... So Stories was reshuffling, and 
Ian Lloyd, who was the singer and the bassist, became the singer and the keyboard player, and I came in and started playing bass. Right. Then we you shuffled. You guys had a huge hit with Brother Louie, too. Yeah. You got the ride I remember well, that right? as a young so, kid. But do you know the story behind that? No. Well, I remember it was a song about, uh, wasn't it a song about uh, interracial love? Inter- yeah, interracial affairs. Uh, but but how that whole thing then. happened was, back in those days, I did some session work. And stories also, as a band, we did some session work together. So there was an act on the Kama Sutra, a band called Exuma from the Caribbean. They had been making some records, and then they decided they were going to do another record, and they really wanted to do it in a better, more sophisticated production to it than what they had been doing. So Richie and Kenny, guitarist and lyricist from Dust, they produced this record. Stories were the session players on it, on some of it. I did bass, and I would play on these Exuma records as the bassist, as a studio cat. And then Neil Bogart got this record, Brother Louie, which had been recorded by Hot Chocolate. It's a Hot Chocolate song. I might remember that. You know, I was a, ki- a kid then, and so I was just, anything that was pouring out of AM, I was listening to. Well, and what year now, did that come out as a Hot Chocolate tune? Was that They 60s? both came out at the same, t- 73. 70, they uh, both 73. came out at 73? Yeah, so. How so, bizarre that so they So what both happened did was, that. so they found this record, and they wanted to do it with Exuma. So Stories went in and cut the track. The, the track that you hear of Brother Louie, that story's cutting it for another band, and our singer put on the lead vocal as a scratch vocal for the other guy from the other band to learn. Wow. And when Neil Bogart heard Ian's vocal on it, he said, screw Exuma, this is going to be the next Story single. Whoa. And then Story's version. funny how things happen like that Story's version and the Hot Chocolate version came out at the same time, but we did the definitive under three minute American top 40 classic string solo Mm -hmm. in the middle, which everybody was doing at the time. And it just shot up to number one and left the Hot Chocolate version in, in the dust. That's <laughs> no crazy that they would... But yeah, so it wasn't meant for stories. We did really recorded it for another band of session players. Wow. It's funny how these things work out yeah. sometimes. I'm glad but, I asked. But the fact that... That's a good story. The two bands released the same song at the same time is so bizarre to me. I mean... Yeah, but if, if 60s, you listen to the Hot Chocolate version and you listen to Story's version, ours is clearly the commercial, get to the point, typical American top 40 single in hook out everything's a hook you know it's just it's a great ra- it's a great record and i haven't heard hot chocolates version of it did they just kind of soul funk it up more and kind of add the music no, it in just between, goes or... it's longer and is it, it faster just, no it just doesn't have what the story's version gotcha did, you know mm-hmm. okay so what makes it well, if you, if you listen to the two i'm gonna do that here in a second you know exactly what i'm talking about all right we're spending yeah. so much time talking about these early early days i hope we still leave time for your full history we're with kenny we aronson do. here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll there was all this activity that we've been talking about and you're growing and developing as a yeah. player tell me about when you got the call to play with hall and oats yeah that came from 
The keyboard player from Stories was friendly with their keyboard player. Hall knows his keyboard player at the time. His name was Don something. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember okay. his name. I can't uh, remember what I had for lunch today. But <laughs> Hall Notes was also in a position at the time where they weren't the Hall Notes that we know and love as we've known them for a long time. They were coming out of their, really their acoustic period, and they went electric. And they had an album called War Babies that was produced by Todd Rundgren. And they were reshuffling their group at the time. And so I was recommended and I got the gig with them. I just did one tour with them, though. Mm-hmm. But that was the time when they were really were reconnoitering into becoming what Hall Notes became more famous for, too. Y- you wouldn't have heard it at the time. Like I said, they did this record with Todd Rundgren, and it was not a commercial record. or It didn't really have any of the elements that we know about. Okay. They now I'm going to go back and find it on YouTube. I they were you're, growing. You're giving us homework here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's homework. interesting, this because if you don't know that period of them, you should check it out, because you'll go, wow, this is really, they still haven't found it wasn't the soulful I mean they had Sarah Smile but Sarah Smile hadn't been a hit yet Sarah Smile I think was released a second time that's when it became really big mm-hmm. Sarah Smile was actually from early early on and was maybe a regional had success in a regional way but it wasn't as we knew it later on were you right. familiar with Sarah Smile at that time before no, you got the call no, from Hall I Oates? wasn't familiar with Paul and Oates really it was just another job that I did uh-huh. that led me to this and that led me to that and just part of my journey. I mean, I would say that I'm probably would be way better suited for Hall Notes now than I was at the time. Gotcha. You know, and my playing has just changed so much over the years that like the Kenny from back then, I don't even hardly even know that anymore. That's how much I've changed as a player. So well, Part of that, I think, is, tell me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like you've absorbed every place you've been, different people you've played with, you've absorbed from them as well as give them what oh, you've Oh, absolutely. You know, you're absorbing, you're taking it in, and then you find yourself in another position, and whatever you learn from there, now you're trying to use it and bestow it on something else. If you can make it work, you know, you find ways. It doesn't always work. It's a very organic thing, mm-hmm. but you're a sponge, man. You're just soaking it up as you're going along. And you're also learning learning how to work for other people and learning to respect your instrument and the artist and the song and your role. Because that's, I, learning, you know, that's because, a learning experience for anybody, any well, player, right? Anybody, you know, especially guys who are doing session and work like you were doing at that time. Well, I don't know if you're going to ask me about Leslie West. I'm not sure I can't see your notes from here. We'll get there. But that's the next thing that happened after Hall & Oates. And it was working with Leslie. He was one of those people What's where... If you were doing something that wasn't right, he would just flat out let you know. And that's how you learn. So, you know, back in those days, I was a pretty busy bass player. One of my biggest influences was Jack Bruce. And I played a lot of notes. And Leslie was one of the guys that would, you know, one day we were doing, in part of Leslie's show, there was a Cream song that we did. And of course, I had to play it like Jack Bruce, just Uh because I could, pretty much (laughs) at the time. My fingers don't don't go as fast anymore. And Leslie didn't want that. Right. And he said to him, he goes, uh, uh, Ken, we don't need another Jack Bruce in the band. 
You know, <laughs> he was spot on, Leslie West. He, he had worked with Jack. You know, he, you know they right, had they right. had West Bruce and Lang, and right. he didn't want that. But Leslie wouldn't hold back. He would just tell you, Jewish kid from Long Island, of and, course. Oh, he was he was a piece of work. I love Leslie. He's great, tremendous guitar player. But what a character, man! <laughs> and really, really funny guy. And while working with Leslie, I started off with Corky Lang on drums, and then right. Corky and Leslie had a bit of a falling out, and Corky split, and then we got Carmine Apice. So that's right. when I first got to play with Carmine. But Carmine was a pretty busy player, and he would drive Leslie crazy too. And Leslie would turn around and and say like, "Hey, Carmine, stop playing those freaking hi-hat fills." You know, he would just <laughs> Leslie would just tell you, to, you know, where to go. Right. Some That's guys cool. would give you specific instructions. He gave you the general feel for what well, he didn't he, want. Or... He didn't hold back. Did I read right that when you were playing with Leslie and Mountain, that Mick Jones, who was in Spooky Tooth and would later Mick, form Mick Farmer, Jones, he Mick was in Jones, the band. yeah. So I was in one of the versions of the Leslie. West Band. So this was after Mountain. This was after West Bruce and Lang. Now it was the Leslie West Band. And this also had people coming in and out of the band. So at the time that I was there, it was Corky, replaced by Carmine. But the whole time, Mick Jones was playing rhythm guitar. And then right at the end of that was when Mick was formulating Foreigner. He had the idea. Then. Yeah. So he was working on Foreigner at this time as far as his He didn't know vision. it at the time, yeah. but he was because it was not too far after that that he Formed Farner. I actually knew someone that I was working with, Al Greenwood, the keyboard player, right. original uh-huh. keyboard player mm-hmm. from Farner, was a friend of mine. We had a little progressive rock band called Storm that we were in. I had my prog rock days, yeah. by yeah, the way. Cool. That's cool. And uh, and I recommended Al to Mick. That's how Al got the Farner gig. Wow. Did you like the way Mick played with feel at that time in his younger days? Did he play like with real nice feel at that time? He was a great rhythm guitar player. You didn't see, I don't remember him doing leads because it was that was all yeah, about Leslie. Leslie. You the, know, and again, it was really not a very long gig. It was like it lasted for a part of a year and, and then I moved on. You did a little more than a year, didn't you, with Rick Derringer? Oh, I did yeah, you had three a and a half run. years yeah, you had with a good Rick. Run with him, a couple yeah. records and a number of tours. We did about six records, I think. Was with three or four studio records and two live ones. Gotcha. There was an unofficial how the, live one. How'd you hook up with that and, and Rick? And, and what was that like for you? Because that was primetime All-American Boys. Like, I, I was living time. in Brooklyn. I had just worked with Leslie. I don't think I was doing anything at the time. And I got woken up one morning from a phone call and it was like, hey, it's Rick Derringer. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he just said, hey, it's Rick. It's Rick Derringer. He goes, hey, I'm putting a band together. You want... You want I want you to play bass in it. It was like, oh, okay, you know? And he told me, he goes, well, I'm going to go down to Louisiana because he was interested in Vinny Apice, Carmine's little brother, who was in a band with a guy named Danny Johnson who was going to be the next guitar player with Rick in this band. Oh. And Rick wanted to check them out together. So Rick went down to, I think, Shreveport to see Vinny playing with this guy, Danny. And then once Rick knew, well, this is what I want to do, he got everybody to New York and we, we put Derringer together. Wow. Cool. That must have been so much fun. I was, was a big great. fan of all those oh, records yeah. and uh, never saw the band live. But... Well, Rick is just a ridiculously amazing guitar player. He's really just an incredible guitarist. You know, at the time, Rick was sort of uh, New York rock and Roll royalty. Rick and his and his wife Liz. They had a beautiful townhouse in the village. Rick had this big separate backyard 
structure where all his toys were and nice. cars and recording equipment. And he'd, they'd have parties there. And after we opened up, we, we were second on the bill to Aerosmith during the 1976 Aerosmith Rocks Tour. Wow. And Ooh. we opened up for them at the Garden, Madison Square. And after, Rick had this huge party, and everybody came over, and John Belushi was there. Oh. And he was doing his Joe Cocker imitation. And we were backing him up back in, in Rick's back backyard structure oh, there. Man, the neighbors probably got oh, stories they, oh, from they that. Oh, they must have loved that. Oh, yeah, it was great. You know, it was, it was uh, you know, Steven Tyler hanging out with Steven. It was great, man. It was, you know, B.B. Buell was around. Oh, that's in the B.B. Buell era. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. well, Rick's wife was really great friends with B.B. They were like best buds, sort of. I used to see B.B. all the time over at that house. Yeah, it was, it was great. And then, of course, we had... I don't know. We had Steve Paul as the manager. You know about Steve Paul? I know the name, but I don't know about Okay. Well, you need to make a note. Make a note, <laughs> Steve. You, a need note. To, you need Steve to look Paul, up, read about Steve Paul, another fixture of New York nightlife. He owned the very famous nightclub, The Scene, Steve Paul's Scene. And this was a little bit before my time. I wasn't, uh, I couldn't go out hanging in bars and I didn't have, you know, phony ID or anything. And I didn't, I didn't drink or anything at the time. But Steve Paul's scene was the hippest night spot, one of the hippest night spots. I mean, you had a lot of places at the time. But Steve Paul's scene, you had Jimi Hendrix in there every night. Wow. Johnny Winter, whoever was in town from England, you know, Jeff Beck, this one or that one, they would all go to the scene and they'd be there all hours of the night jamming. Wow. Wow. And that's how Steve Paul was famous for that. But he also, he started Blue Sky Records and became a okay. manager, and he was responsible for getting Johnny Winter a record right, a deal. Lot, and he had a lot of records that were released on Blue Sky. Blue Sky Records. He had films. Johnny. He had mm-hmm. Edgar Winter. Mm-hmm. I think they were doing Muddy Waters for a while. They signed David Johansson. They, yeah, Hardigan was they on had Blue Sky. Hardigan was, that right. Album. That was Johnny and Muddy. Yeah. And uh, they had a lot of stuff going on. Blue Sky was very cool to have. Had a great suite of offices and a beautiful Art Deco building in, in Manhattan. Used to love to go up there and just hang out. And Steve had a beautiful mansion in Connecticut. And, and on various weekends, everybody would be invited up to hang out in his Connecticut home. Back when you the know. music business was so much fun. Yeah, it was yes. great. It, it was, was like so you really felt so like different. you were in the midst of like real rock and roll and the lifestyle. And it was great. It was very cool. You're listening to the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll podcast. Uh, Ray and Marcus here with our guest Kenny Aronson and Kenny we do a thing we call the podcast update and before we started rolling tape tonight we started talking about records we started talking about the Yardbirds because we're going to talk about that more coming up because you're in the current version of the Yardbirds which has got to be a blast but we were talking about a record that we all thought Jimmy Page played the guitar on and you set us straight because of your own research tell us about that well, it's the podcast update. As I was saying earlier, we were talking about, I was saying that I heard your podcast about it, and I noticed what I thought was not quite accurate information. Correct. So, Which is not uncommon. And so, <laughs> and so referring to, so in reference to Donovan's Hurdy Gurdy Man, I remember when that record came out, everybody thought that, especially from the guitar solo and the drum style, everybody thought it was Led Zeppelin. Backing up Donovan. Backing up Donovan on the mm-hmm. A side, and then the B side 
is the song Barabajaggle. That right. is the Jeff Beck group backing up Donovan on that. Wow. So that's where they that's why people so, throw one side and then the other. Got it. And if you listen to the solo on Hurdy Gurdy Man, it's very Jimmy Page like. Well, you know, now that it's got the internet, and there's just so much information out there. I was digging around thinking, is that Bonham playing drums? Because it really sounds like the early sort of style of John Bonham. And I found something somewhere where John Paul Jones talks about that he was basically the session leader. Mm-hmm. He hired the people from that session. And no, it's not Jimmy Page. It's an English guitar player, and I believe his name is Alan Parker. And it's out there. I don't know where I found it, but but it's, it's there. It's not hard to find. And the drummer wasn't John Bonham. It's a very highly respected, well-known English session cat named Clem Catini. And Clem Catini played on tons of records in the 60s, and he did a lot of stuff for Joe Meek. And if you look up these people, it's it's going to create all these... We're getting the history lesson ourselves. You're going to get all these threads that are going to lead you all over the place. It's really great stuff. That's what it's all about here. And you know what? We look for feedback from the audience. We get feedback from the audience through our Gmail account. We're on Facebook and stuff. This is what we want people to help us get it right. Well, I've always had an interest in trying to find out who plays on certain records. Because a lot of stuff, especially from back then, there's no credit. Nobody gets credit. And, you know, I've been listening to music most of my life. And, you know, I like to think that I can recognize certain people. And, you know, I'm always want to know who plays on this. Is this Hal Blaine? Is it Earl Palmer? Who played on all the early Little Richard stuff? And a lot of times I find it's not who I think it is. But it's amazing when you look up to try to find one thing, where that one thing all of a sudden, now you're looking at six different threads going all over the place. Welcome to our podcast life. Yeah, finding out all this really great info. You know, really and I, I always love to find out who's playing what on the record. Well, thanks for records. setting us straight on that. Yeah, no, that, yeah, no it's great. That. That's amazing. It. It's great stuff. All right, Marcus, I've waited as long as I can. You know I've been dying to ask you. Please tell us about working with Bob Dylan. He's been holding uh, back on this. Okay. <laughs> I've been thinking about this question well, since we talked about doing this. You know, okay, I'll, well, I'll tell you, my first encounter with Bob was I was playing a club in New York City with a friend of mine, and we had this really great black singer, Mariel Epps was her name, and she used to sing back up with a friend of mine. And I think Bob, well, Bob came into this bar, and I think because he liked this woman, Mariel, and came maybe to see her, hear her sing. Right. And he was with Scarlett Rivera. And at the end of the night, I ran into him like by the bathroom or something. And I think he was drinking. And I just sort of started talking to him. And (laughs) I must have been drinking because I'm pretty shy. And I just wrote my number on a piece of paper. And I said, if you ever need a bass player, and I stuck Uh, it in Bob's pocket. Now, what did you think was the likelihood that you would get a phone call? Oh, no likelihood at all. Okay. And how long did it take before you got Well, I don't remember. I don't remember how long it was from that encounter but my girlfriend at the time had a business and I went over to meet her one night and we went downstairs in her building to this restaurant to eat dinner and another woman who worked for her came running down to the restaurant saying somebody called the office my girlfriend's office I looking for me I don't maybe I gave them no I don't I don't know exactly somehow someone found me through 
through calling my girlfriend's office. Now, I, now <laughs> I don't think I don't think it was from Bob. It was people that he'd been playing with that knew me. Okay, because he had G.E. Smith. Okay, playing. Okay. So there were people in the city that sure. I knew. You know, so somebody found me because they were going on tour really quick, and they needed a whoever had been working with them before. Actually, might have been I think Marshall Crenshaw actually was supposed to be doing this wow. tour. Now I'm not sure about this. Okay, but so, that's that's the nature so I don't, of this I don't podcast. Wanna, I don't we'll want to look and find. But out. what I was told was Marshall Crenshaw was supposed to be doing this, and they realized he's not really a solid bassist. You know, bass player, bass mm-hmm. player, and so they needed to get somebody else. They got in touch with me, mm-hmm. and I was the message was, "Can you come down to rehearse the very next day?" That's how you knew it was, it was somebody's be a from Bob's lawyer lawyer's office or management and they said could Kenny come down to rehearse at the studio so I went down to the studio in New York City called Montana that's where Bob liked to rehearse and I went in and it was just G.E. Smith Chris Parker on drums and some other people from I guess the crew I didn't know anybody and they started teaching me songs there was no Bob Bob was not there and I learned a bunch of tunes and then they said well can you come back tomorrow and I was like okay and I came back the next day and I learned a bunch more tunes still no Bob I don't think Bob they asked me to come back again and maybe the third day or so Bob showed up probably he was having them check out how it felt I don't know nobody said very much at all just can Hmm. you come back the next thing I know is they said, we're leaving. Can you do this gig and it pays this? Is this good money for you? And it was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll take it. I mean, they made How me long a- was that first tour? How long was that? Oh, it was a few months, yeah. you know, over the course of a summer, maybe. Is there, is there anything you could tell us about Bob Dylan that most people might not know from those months you spent? Like, does he collect there? stamps or postcards or anything quirky like that? Good question, my friend. What's that? I'm getting sign language from my girlfriend. Oh, well, Bob had a thing about windows opening. He didn't like to stay in hotels if the windows didn't open. Oh, like he didn't like the hermetically sealed windows? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And, That's and, something and, I would and never I, have and, known. You know, everybody had like their own bus. You know, like there was a crew bus, there was a band bus, and then there was Bob's bus where he would travel with his buddy Victor. Okay. And apparently they used to keep the windows open all the time because Bob liked fresh air. Fresh air. Yeah. Don't but, we uh, all? No, but, but I only did really one tour with him. Uh-huh. Because I had an issue with my health. I had gotten cancer. That was your skin cancer battle. And yeah. So I had to leave. I started a second tour in 1989, but I had to leave to, to deal with my health. But I have to tell you, the, the, the first tour that I did with him, Bob was, hang, it was just was sitting here talking to you guys. He was totally just like a regular dude. Wow. I'm just. He was actually away, very man. cool. He was really from he my was youngest, really nice. from my youngest years, even maybe before the Beatles. Dylan was just like has always been this icon to me in a way that I can't explain. I guess you probably understand it because you probably felt that too. When you I were listen. I was in awe of all of it. I was happy to be there. I was playing with great musicians. You know, I was playing with GE. I was yeah. playing with Chris Parker, who was just an amazing drummer. What was great? It was it was just a four piece band. It was really stripped down. The 
the first show I did was in Berkeley, and Neil Young pulled up in his old Cadillac and pulled out <laughs> this funky old Silvertone amp and that black Les Paul that yeah. he's used for years, and he just got up and played with us during the show. Whoa. And I'm just standing there going, man, I can't believe I'm in the middle of <laughs> all this. Me. I was, yeah, it was like, pinch me. This is really Amazing. Like, too much. Bob. 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 He played and hung with Bob. And they talked normally. Wow. Episode 14 of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And there's more to come, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> we have a couple of stories that are going to blow your mind as well, including an audition with a band hmm. that might be bigger than Bob. Hmm. And that's up for a debate. We should have that debate one time. Yeah. Anyway, we don't want to give away too much about it, but I can tell you, Kenny Aronson is a great guy and a, an easy interview, I guess you'd yeah. say, because we just started talking with him. You can see how much fun it was. Yeah. So you can understand why we can't wait to get back with episode 15, which is going to be part two of our conversation with Kenny Aronson. Hey, don't forget to give us feedback at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com or you can go to our website, imbalancedhistory.com and make sign comments up for the email there too. list. Yeah, yes, you, you can, can make that. comments yes, can. and you can go to our Facebook page, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Like it, love it, know it, and follow it. One more thing. Uh, thanks to Rick DeFonso. The music you hear on the way in and the way out, that's him, rickdefonso.com. You can find out about his uh, new album, what he's up to musically, and we thank him and we thank Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget, part two, episode 15 with Kenny Aronson next time on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.